Section 2 of the Great Events by Famous Historians. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botez. The Great Events by Famous Historians. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Section 2. Germanicus in Germany. A.D. 13-16. By Tacitus. Part 1. When the Germans first became known to the Romans, about B.C. 112, they showed themselves as warlike tribes along the northern borders of Italy and in various parts of Gaul, where Caesar afterward had frequent encounters with them, driving them across the Rhine into their own country. But Caesar's knowledge of them was confined to those tribes whose dwellings were near the Rhine, beyond which he did not pursue them. Augustus fortified against the Germans along the Rhine, and Drusus, his stepson, took command against them, defeating them in several expeditions. B.C. 13-9 As a reward, he received for himself and his posterity the surname of Germanicus, conqueror of Germany. He died at the age of thirty, his son Germanicus, born B.C. 14, was sent in A.D. 12 to command the forces on the Rhine. After quelling serious mutinies among his legions, he crossed the Rhine and attacked and routed some of the German tribes, who had been actively aggressive against the Romans. During the following year he defeated other tribes, and after his return across the Rhine, he was persuaded by Segestes to aid him against his son-in-law Arminius, the Latin name for Hermann, by whom Segestes was besieged and who, according to Tacitus, became in the end the deliverer of Germany from the power of the Romans. But before he was able to render this service to the German peoples, he had many hardships to endure and at the hands of Germanicus he met with severe reverses. Arminius had defeated Varus, who, by reason of that disgrace, killed himself. A.D. 10 And the dispatch of Germanicus to command the German legions was ordered in the first instance to revenge the overthrow of his predecessor. Although it required several campaigns, the work of Germanicus was so effectual that he withdrew in the end, at the command of Tiberius, with advantage on his side, and returning to Rome, enjoyed a triumph, A.D. 17. His name is preserved in history, alike for his military talents and services, for his attainments in literary pursuits, and his nobleness of mind. In the consulship of Drusus Caesar and Caius Norbanus, a triumph was decreed to Germanicus, 
the war continuing. He was preparing with all diligence to prosecute it in the summer, but anticipated it by a sudden eruption early in the spring in the territories of the Katians, for he had conceived the hope that the enemy was divided into opposite parties under Arminius and Sagestes, both remarkable for perfidy and fidelity toward us. Arminius was the incendiary of Germany, but Sagestes had given repeated warning of an intended revolt at other times, and during the banquet immediately preceding the insurrection, and advised Varus to secure him and Arminius and all the other chiefs, that the multitude, bereft of their leaders, would not dare to attempt anything, and Varus would have an opportunity to separate the guilty from the innocent. But fate decreed it, and he was slain by Arminius. Sagestes, though drawn into the war by the universal agreement of the nation in it, yet continued to disapprove of it, his detestation being augmented by motives of a domestic nature, for Arminius had carried away the daughter of Sagestes, already betrothed to another, the son-in-law hated, the fathers-in-law were at enmity, and those relations which are bonds of affection between friends fomented the animosities of enemies. Germanicus, therefore, handed over to Cecina four legions, five thousand auxiliaries, and some tumultuous bands of Germans, who dwelt on this side of the Rhine. He led, himself, as many legions, with double the number of allies, and erecting a fort at Mount Taunus, upon the site of one raised by his father, he pushed on the light-marching order against the Catians. Having left Lucius Apronius to secure the roads and the rivers, for, as the roads were dry and the rivers within bounds, events in that climate of rare occurrence, he had found no check in his rapid march, but on his return apprehended the violent rains and floods. He fell upon the Catians with such a surprise that all the weak, through sex or age, were instantly taken or slaughtered. The young men swam over the Adrana and endeavored to obstruct the Romans, who commenced building a bridge. Then, repulsed by engines and arrows, and having in vain tried terms of peace, after some had gone over to Germanicus, the rest abandoned their cantons and villages and dispersed themselves into the woods. Matium, the capital of the nation, he burned, ravaged the open country, and bent his march to the Rhine. Nor durst the enemy harass his rear, which is their custom whenever they have fled, more from craft than fear. The Cheruscans had purposed to assist the Catians, but were deterred by Cecina, who moved about with his forces from place to place, and the Marcians who dared to engage him, he checked by a victory. 
Soon after arrived deputies from Segetes, praying relief against the violence of his countrymen by whom he was besieged. Arminius, having more influence with them than himself, because he advised war. For the barbarians, the more resolute in daring a man is, the more he is trusted and preferred in times of commotion. To the deputies, Segetes had added Segimund, his son, but the young man hesitated from self-conviction. For the year when Germany revolted, having been created priest at the Obian altar, he had run the fillets and fled to the revolters. Yet, induced to rely upon Roman clemency, he undertook the execution of his father's orders, was graciously received, and conducted with a guard to the Gaelic bank of the Rhine. Germanicus thought it worthwhile to march back, fought the besiegers, and rescued Sagittes with a numerous train of his relations and followers, in which were ladies of illustrious rank, and among them the wife of Arminius, the same who was the daughter of Sagittes, with a spirit more like that of her husband than her father, neither subdued to tears nor uttering the language of supplication, but her hands folded within her bosom, and her eyes fixed upon her teeming womb. There were likewise carried off the spoils taken at the slaughter of Varus and his army, and given them as booty to most of those who then surrendered. At the same time appeared Sagittes himself of vast stature, and undaunted in the consciousness of his fidelity. In this manner he spoke, This is not the first day that I have approved my faith and constancy to the Roman people. From the moment I was by the deified Augustus presented with the freedom of the city, I have chosen my friends and enemies with reference to your interests, and that not from hatred of my country. For odious are traitors, even to the party they prefer. But because the interests of the Romans and Germans were the same, and because I was inclined to peace rather than war, for this reason, before Varus, the then general, I arraigned Arminius, the ravisher of my daughter, and the violator of the league with you, put off from the sappiness of the general, and seeing there was little protection in the laws, I importuned him to throw into irons myself and Arminius, and his accomplices, witness that night, to me, I would rather it had been the last. More to be lamented than defended are the events which followed. However, I cast Arminius into irons, and was myself cast into irons by his faction. And now, on the first opportunity of conferring with you, I prefer all things to new, peace to turbulence, and at the same time, I might be a fitting mediator for the German nation, with no view of reward, but to clear myself of perfidy, if they would rather repent than be destroyed. For the youth and inexperience of my son, I implore pardon. 
I admit my daughter has been brought into this state by constraint. It will be yours to consider which should preponderate with you, that she is the wife of Armenius or the daughter of Sagetes. The answer of Germanicus was gracious. He promised indemnity to his children and kindred, and to himself as a retreat, a place called Vetera, in the province. Then returned with his army, and by the direction of Tiberius received the title of Imperator. The account circulated of the surrender of Sagestes, and his gracious reception affected his countrymen with hope or anguish as they were severely prone or averse to the war. Acting upon a temper naturally violent, the captivity of his wife and child in her womb, subjected to bondage, drove Arminius to destruction. He flew about among the Cheruscans, calling them to arms against Segestes, against Germanicus. Nor did he refrain from invectives, an excellent father, a great general, a valiant army, whose many hands had carried off one bit of a woman, that before him three legions fell, three lieutenants general, for his method of carrying on war was not by treason, nor against pregnant women, but openly against armed hosts, that the Roman standards were still to be seen in the German groves, there suspended by him to his country's gods. Segestes might live upon the vanquished bank. He might get the priesthood restored to his son. But the Germans would ever regard the fellow as the guilty cause of their having seen, between Elbe and Rhine, rods and axes and the toga, that to other nations who know not the Roman domination, executions and tributes were unknown, and as they had thrown them off, and as Augustus, he who was enrolled with the gods, had retreated without accomplishing his object, and Tiberius, his chosen successor, let them not dread an inexperienced, stripling, and a mutinous army. If they prefer their country, their parents, and their ancient possessions to masters and new settlements, they should follow Arminius, who led them to glory and liberty, rather than Segetes, who conducted them to infamous servitude. By these means, not the Cheruscans only were roused but the bordering nations. And Ingiomer, paternal uncle to Arminius, a man long in high credit with the Romans, was drawn into the confederacy. Hence Germanicus became more alarmed, and to prevent the war falling upon him with unbroken force, sent Cecina with forty Roman cohorts to the river Amicia through the territories of the Bructerians to effect a division in the army of the enemy. Pedo the prefect led the cavalry along the confines of the Frisians. He himself, embarking four legions, sailed through the lakes. And at the aforesaid river the whole body met, 
foot, horse, and fleet. The Kaoshians, upon offering their assistance, were taken into the service, but the Bructerians, setting fire to their effects and dwellings, were routed by Lucius Tertinius, dispatched against them by Germanicus with a band lightly armed, and amid the carnage and plunder he found the eagle of the 19th legion, lost in the overthrow of Varus. The army marched next to the farthest borders of the Bructerians, and the whole country between the rivers Amicia and Lupia was laid waste. Not far hence lay the forest of Teutoburgium, and in it the bones of Varus and the legions, by report still unburied. Germanicus, therefore, conceived the desire to pay the last offices to the legions and their leader, while the whole of the army present were moved to deep commiseration for their kinsmen and friends, and generally for the calamities of war and the condition of humanity. Kechina, having been sent before to explore the gloomy recesses of the forest, and to lay bridges and causeways over the watery portions of the morasses and in secure places in the plains, they enter the doleful scene, hideous in appearance and association. The first camp of Varus appeared in view. The extent of ground and the measurement of the Principia left no doubt that the whole was the work of three legions, after that, a half-decayed rampart, with a shallow fosse, where the remains, now sadly reduced, were understood to have sunk down. In the intervening portion of the plain were whitening bones, either scattered or accumulated, according as they had fled or had made a stand. Near them lay fragments of javelins and limbs of horses. There were also skulls fixed upon the trunks of trees. In the adjacent groves were the savage altars, where they had emulated the tribunes and centurions of the first rank. Those who survived the slaughter, having escaped from captivity and the sword, related the sad particulars to the rest. Here the commanders of the legions were slain. There we lost the eagles. Here Varus had his first wound, there he gave himself another, and perished by his own unhappy hand. In that place, too, stood the tribunal whence Arminius harangued. How many gibbets he erected for the execution of his captives, what trenches he dug, and how, in proud scorn, he made a mock at the standards and eagles the Roman army which was on the spot, buried the bones of the three legions six years after the slaughter, nor could anyone distinguish whether he buried the remains of a stranger or of a kinsman. But all considered the whole as friends, as relations, with heightened resentment against the foe, at once sad and revengeful. Germanicus laid the first sword used in raising a tomb, thus rendering a most acceptable service to the dead.
and showing that he shared the sorrows of the living, a proceeding not likely by Tiberius. Whether it were that, upon every action of Germanicus, he put a malignant construction, or that he believed that the impression produced by the sight of the unburied slain would dampen the ardor of the army for battle and inspire them with fear of the enemy. He also said that a general invested with the office of Augur and the most ancient religious functions ought not to have put his hand to the ceremonies of the dead. Armenius, retiring into pathless places, was pursued by Germanicus, who, as soon as he reached him, commanded the horse to advance and dislodge the enemy from the post he had possessed. Arminius, having directed his men to keep close together and draw near to the wood, wheeled suddenly about, and to those who had hidden the forest, gave the signal to rush out. Then the Roman horse were thrown into disorder by the assault of a new army, and the cohorts sent out to support them, broken in upon by the body of troops that fled, had augmented the consternation, and were now being pushed into the morass, a place well known to the pursuers, but dangerous to those unacquainted with it. Had not Germanicus drawn out the legions in order of battle, hence the enemy became terrified, our men reanimated, and both retired without advantage on either side. Germanicus, soon after, returning with the army to the Amicia, reconducted the legions as he had brought them in the fleet. Part of the horse were ordered to march along the seashore to the Rhine. Kecina, who led his own men, was warned that, though he was to return through well-known roads, yet he should with all speed pass the causeway called the Long Bridges. It is a narrow causeway between vast marshes, and formerly raised by Lucius Domitius. The rest of the country is of a moist nature, either tough and sticky from a heavy kind of clay, or dangerous from the streams which intersect it. Round about are woods which rise gently from the plain, which at that time were filled with soldiers by Arminius who, by shortcuts and quick marching, had arrived there before our men, who were loaded with arms and baggage. Kecina, who was perplexed how at once to repair the causeway, decayed by time, and to repulse the foe, resolved to encamp in the place, that, while some were employed in the work, others might begin the fight. The barbarians, having made a vigorous effort, to break through the outposts and fall upon those employed in the works, harass the troops, march round them, and throw themselves in their way. A mingled shout arose from the workmen and the combatants, all things equally combined to distress the Romans. The place, deep with ooze, sinking under those who stood, slippery to such as advanced, their bodies were encumbered with their coats of mail, nor could they hurl their javelins in the midst of water. 
the Cheruscans, on the contrary, were inured to encounters in the bogs. Their persons tall, their spears long, so as to wound at distance. At last the legions, already giving way, were saved from defeat by the approach of night. The Germans, not feeling fatigue on account of their success, without refreshing themselves with sleep, even then diverted all the courses of the springs which rise in the neighboring mountains into the plains. Thus the ground being flooded, and the work, as far as they had carried it, overturned, the soldiers had all to do over again. Kecina, who had served forty years, either under others or in command, was experienced in the vicissitudes of war, prosperous or disastrous, and thence undaunted. Weighing, therefore, all probabilities, he could devise no other expedient than that of restraining the enemy to the wood, until he had sent forward all the wounded and baggage. For between the mountains and the marshes, there stretched a plain large enough to admit a small army. To this purpose the legions selected were the fifth for the right wing and twenty-first for the left, the soldiers of the first legion to lead the van of the twentieth to oppose the pursuers. It was a restless night to both armies, but from different causes. The barbarians, with festive carousals, songs of triumph or horrid cries, filled the vales below and echoing wood. Among the Romans were feeble fires, low broken murmurs. They leaned, drooping here and there, against the pales, or wandered about the tents, more like men wanting sleep than quite awake. The general, too, was alarmed by direful visions during his sleep. He thought he heard and saw Quintilius Varus rising out of the marsh, all besmeared with blood, stretching forth his hand and calling upon him. But that he rejected the call and pushed back his hand as he held it toward him. At break of day, the legions posted on the wings whether from perverseness or fear, deserted their post and took sudden possession of a field beyond the bogs. Neither did Arminius fall straight upon them, though they lay open to assault. But when the baggage was set fast in the mire and ditches, the soldiers about it in disorder, the order of the standards confounded, and, as usual at such a time, each man acting hastily for himself, when the ears are slow to catch the word of command, he then commanded his Germans to charge, exclaiming vehemently, Behold, Varus and his legions again subdued by the same fate. Thus he cried, and instantly, with a select body, broke through the mass, and chiefly against the horse directed his weapons floundering in their own blood and the slippery soil of the marsh they threw their riders overturned all they met 
and trampled on those that were on the ground. The greatest distress was around the eagles, which could neither be carried against a shower of darts, nor be planted in the slimy ground. Kechina, while he sustained the fight, had his horse shot, and, having fallen, would have been overpowered, had not the first legion come up to succor him. Our relief came from the greediness of the enemy, who ceased slaying to seize the spoil, and the legions, as the day closed in, by great exertion, got into the open and firm ground. Nor was this the end of their miseries. A palisade was to be raised, an entrenchment digged. Their instruments, too, for throwing up and carrying earth, and their tools for cutting turf were almost all lost. No tents for the soldiers, no remedies for the wounded. While dividing among them their food, defiled with mire or blood, they lamented that mournful night. They lamented the approaching day to so many thousand men the last. It happened that a horse, which had broken his fastenings, and, as he strayed about, become frightened by a noise, had run over some that were in his way. This raised such a consternation in the camp, from a persuasion that the Germans had forced an entrance, that all rushed to the gates, especially to the postern, as the farthest from the foe and safer for flight. Kechina having ascertained that there was no cause for alarm, but unable to stop them or hold them back, either by his authority or prayers or even by force, prostrated himself on the threshold of the gate, and thus at length, by appealing to their humanity, for if they proceeded, it must be over the body of the general, he blocked the passage, and the tribunes and centurions satisfied them the while that it was a false alarm. Then, assembling them in the court and desiring them to hear him with silence, he warned them of their difficulties and their duty under them, that their sole hope of safety was in their valor, but that must be guided by counsel, that they must keep close within their camp till the enemy, in hopes of taking it by storm, came up nearer to them, then make a sudden sally on every side, that by this sally they might make good their way to the Rhine. But if they fled, more forests, deeper marshes, and the fierce attack of the foe still remained on them, but that if they conquered, honor and renown awaited them. He reminded them of all that was dear to them at home, and the rewards to be obtained in the camp, but suppressed all mention of defeat. He next distributed horses, first his own, then those of the tribunes and leaders of the legions, to all the bravest warriors, without any flattery, that these first, and afterward the infantry, might charge the enemy. 
the Germans were in no less agitation from hope, eagerness, and the opposite counsels of their leaders. Arminius proposed to let them march out and to beset them again in their way when they got into marshes and difficult passes. Ingiomer advised measures more resolute and acceptable to barbarians. To invest the camp, it would be quickly captured. There would be more captives and the plunder uninjured. As soon, therefore, as it was light, they leveled the ditch, cast hurdles into it, attempt to scale the palisade, there being but a few men on the rampart, and those who were standing as if paralyzed by fear. But when they were hampered in the fortifications, the signal was given to the cohorts. The cornets and trumpets sounded at once, and instantly, shouting and charging, they poured down upon their rear, telling them tauntingly, that there were no thickets, no marshes, but equal chances in a fair field. The enemy expecting an easy conquest, and that the Romans were few and half-armed, were overpowered with the sounds of trumpets and glitter of arms, which were then magnified in proportion as they were unexpected, and they fell like men who, as they are void of moderation in prosperity, are also destitute of conduct in distress. Arminius fled from the fight unhurt, Ingiomer severely wounded. The men were slaughtered as long as day and rage lasted. At length, at night, the legions returned, and though distressed by the same want of provisions and more wounds, yet in victory they found all things, health, vigor and abundance. Meanwhile, a report had spread that an army was cut off, and a body of Germans on full march to invade Gaul, so that, under the terror of this news, there were those whose cowardice would have emboldened them to demolish the bridge upon the Rhine, had not Agrippina forbidden the infamous attempt. This high-minded woman took upon herself all the duties of a general, and distributed to the soldiers, gratuitously, medicines and clothes, according as anyone was, in want or wounded. Caius Plinius, the writer of the German wars, relates that she stood at the head of the bridge as the legions returned, and bestowed on them thanks and praises, a behavior which sunk deep into the heart of Tiberius, for these attentions he thought were not disinterested, nor was it against foreigners she sought to win the army, for nothing was now left the generals to do. When a woman paid her visits of inspection to the companies, attended the standards, and presumed to distribute largesses, as if before she had shown but small tokens of ambitious designs in carrying her child, the son of the general, in a soldier's uniform about the camp, and desiring that he be styled Caesar Caligula. 
already Agrippina was in greater credit with the army than the lieutenants general, or even the generals. A woman had suppressed a sedition which the authority of the emperor was not able to restrain. These jealousies were inflamed and ministered to by Sejanus, who was well acquainted with the temper of Tiberius, and supplied him with materials for hatred, prospectively, that he might treasure them up in his heart, and draw them out, augmented in bitterness. End of section 2